Welcome to the Red Rain Podcast. Here is your host from Revenge of the Birds, Walter Mitchell. Thank you, Kyle Little Rock Ledbetter from Sacramento. Uh, I want to thank all of you for the great feedback you gave Kyle on his uh, on his off season plan. And I was very impressed with, uh, um, you know, the comments so many of you made. And uh, it was really fun. And I think Kyle did an amazing job. We're going to do more of that as time goes on this offseason. I got Marcos Labrada coming in some episode in the near future to give us his offseason plan. I'm still working on mine. So, uh, but it's fun to do. And it's like, you know, putting the pieces together and, and uh, coming up with some good ideas about personnel, staff, et cetera. So thanks again to Kyle, and thanks to all of you for um, joining in that conversation. Today I want to focus on Kyler Murray. I cannot tell you how impressed I was uh, enough about how impressed I was with not only that Kyler came back to play this year, um, which I, you know, Felt like I could have understood if he didn't, um, but uh, his rehab went exceptionally well, and he was not hindered in the least in coming back. It's really exciting to see how he evolved over the course of eight games in Drew Petzing's offense. You know, Kyle and I had early conversations about that, where I was a little skeptical about whether this was the ideal offense for Kyler. And uh, but suddenly, as time as as he started assimilating better into that offense, I started to see what the plan could look like, and I I'm now concur with Little Rock that uh, you know Petsing and and Kyler could be a really good match, um, and uh, and I'm I'm very hopeful that uh, next season will we will see a full blown renaissance. From Kyler Murray, I mean, he he himself expressed um, his, you know, he 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 understood um, how he could improve on what he did in the, over the eight games, and but it was impressive that you know, particularly down the stretch, he really started to focus in on areas that were lacking before, like throwing over the sticks on, uh, on third downs and, um, you know, um, sustaining drives and, um, and picking up his chemistry with the receivers, uh, like, like, um, Michael Wilson and Greg Dortch. Uh, and I, th- for a while there, it looked like he was getting something good going with Rondale Moore. So that was very encouraging. Of course, the, the meteoric rise of Trey McBride um, in the offense that, you know, Kyler gained a a quick chemistry with once he returned. Um, And then Elijah Higgins making a a splash as tight end two. Jeff Swaim did a really good job blocking and and, uh, being a mentor in that group. I mean, they were really good. And that offensive line was just attacking. Um, in their zone schemes and trap schemes and pull schemes and with James Conner 
as the bell cow and Michael Carter, um, a really exciting uh, RB2 option um, as a as a dual threat uh, runner and receiver. And Imari DiMarcato, who came up with some really good moments and big games for the Cardinals, uh, who um, also is a, just a premier um, blitz stuffer um, in pass pro, uh, which for a rookie, uh, he did it as well as any rookie I've ever seen. Um, and th that's a huge plus. So there are all sorts of pluses going on here on the offense. And, um, and the major, you know, development down the stretch was how Kyler was uh, adapting very well. Um, and his footwork was really good and playing under center for the first time. He looked like a natural most of the time, um, you know, and, and uh, there were a few glitches here and there, but, uh, but man, it was, it was really encouraging. Um, and I also saw just such a, a boost of maturity from Kyler and the way he handled the media, the way he was very, um, modest and realistic about, uh, you know, in, in his, his and the, the offense's performance, you know, after games um, and handle that with a plum, I thought, you know, and, and, you know, for the first time, I mean, and it really showed, I mean, Kyler was in the building all off season. It's first time since his rookie year. COVID wiped out years two and three, and then his holdout wiped out year four. But the investment that Kyler put in um, this year was just fantastic. And um, it, when that continued, it would be really fascinating to see with it for the first time in five years to be on the field during OTAs and leading the offense um, and, and adding new, new parts to the offense um, and, and getting it the way they want. It's a really exciting prospect. And I think there's, a very decent chance that we're going to see Kyler Murray experience a football renaissance. Um, I want to just go back in time a little bit to kind of chronicle Kyler's journey as an NFL quarterback um, because I think there are contexts there that are um, important to understand and learn from and grow from. So, um, and I'll try to do this with dispatch, but I mean, the rookie year, <laughs> Kyler's first game, first half was just, you know, it's hard to, you know, he's getting passes batted down. It just was not good. And, but then, uh, you know, the second half of that Lions game, boy, oh boy, did he play well. And, um, Cardinals nearly pulled out the win, but got the tie and nobody knew how to handle a tie emotionally, but in a way it was, it was a victory for both Kyler and Cliff because of the way they charged back and um, had opportunity, you know, tied the game up and, in a game that could have gotten away from him pretty quickly. So, and then we near had that near interception and in overtime that could have sealed the deal um, on a win. So um, that was really exciting. And of course, winning um, offensive rookie of the year, um, in his first year, helping to catapult the woeful 2018 offense, which is 32nd in the league, 
by a wide margin to 21st in one year, I thought was, was a really great sign both for Kyler and for Cliff. Um, and then uh, in year two, we saw, uh, you know, continued flashes of greatness with the addition of uh, DeAndre Hopkins and um, some of the chemistry that, that Kyler was able to generate with him. One of my favorite plays was the wink-wink smile play where he and Hopkins hooked up for a touchdown on a, on a, on a silent quick snap. Um, and, of course, the, the Hale-Murray was unbelievable. Um, and, you know, it was an up-and-down year, wins and losses-wise, but to go from 5-10-1 to 8-8 eight and eight was, was a good step forward, and it set the table for – the, the year three and then the buzz that came in with JJ Watt and um, Rodney Hudson, and, you know, it really looked like the Cardinals were now legit going to be legitimate playoff contenders and possible Super Bowl contenders. And I mean, that first game in, in Tennessee was a clinic by Kyler and Hopkins and um, James Connor. I mean, it was just a sight to behold and, that really set a, a great, great tone for the first seven games and all wins. There were games they struggled there, Jacksonville a little bit at home versus the 49ers. And thanks to a uh, one of the best plays Isaiah Simmons made in Cardinal Red, stopping uh, Trey Lance on the one-inch line with Tanner Vallejo um, next to him helping out. Uh, that was a huge play in that game because um, the – the 49ers were right there neck and neck with us during that game. And, and, and it was a struggle for both offenses. Um, but, uh, you know, losing JJ Watt was really a catastrophic blow um, to the morale of the team and to the, the play on the field because JJ Watt in there um, was fantastic um, as a presence and, he only had one sack in his seven games, but he had like 28 quarterback pressures. He was so close to so many sacks. He had seven knockdown passes. He had a forced fumble. He had like 10 tackles for loss on running plays. He was everything you'd hope um, he was going to be. And he had brought in and actually played in only six of those games because he was injured for, for week one against the Chiefs. That might have been a little bit of a different game had he been able to play. But that was really huge. And also the kind of forgotten loss during that stretch under, uh, um, you know, uh, undervalued loss was Max Williams, who was not only blocking his tail off as he, as he always was, but he was, he was emerging as quite the force as a receiver in the, it was his best you know, season he had going in years from both ends, the blocking and receiving. And fortunately, Steve Kime was able to acquire Zach Ertz to pick up the slack. Unfortunately, the Cardinals were not able to make any moves or did not make any moves to account for the loss of, of, uh, of, of JJ Watt, which, you know, cost them right away in that Green Bay game. And it was a fateful Green Bay game um, that 
you know, the Green Bay just basically, and they had all kinds of players out. I think they had their top, all their top receivers out, but they just pounded the ball through the Cardinals defense and time consuming drives and ball control with Aaron Rodgers handing the ball off and making a, a key reset, you know, pass third down conversion every now and then. And that was tough, but the Cardinals came back and that moment, you know, this was a really key game in the sense of, you know, can they prevail in a game like that without JJ Watt? And it looked like they were going to be able to down three and marching. Um, but here's where, uh, in my opinion, here's what happened at the end of that game was that, you know, um, Tyler had a nice little run there. Um, and they were knocking on the uh, in they were in the red zone now and threatening to score a touchdown to win the game and uh you know but on he had a nice first down run for like 6 or 7 yards and on second down it looked like Kyler decided he was just going to run the ball again um it looked like kind of an audible to me um that you know, like which Kyler had the liberty to do is that any time he thought he could, you know, um, run with the ball, he he would do it sometimes without even telling the offensive line. And, and that was a huge play and 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 a difficult play because Kyler was tackled for a loss and was incurred the high ankle sprain that that wound up cast, costing him four weeks or three weeks of games and one week of, of uh, I think there was a buy in there or whatever. Um, and so, but Kyler was still out there. And then the, um, the failed audible to AJ Green, um, where obviously AJ didn't pick up on the, on the audible and uh, was scoreboard watching while Rasul Douglas stole the game away. Um, that was really tough. And, and, you know, so it was two audibles in a row. Now what's really tough about that too, is that this, this audible to AJ green was coming off a timeout. So a play was called there, which, which was mutually agreed upon. And when Tyler got to the line and, you know, saw what the defense was doing, he changed his mind, obviously. Um, but, you know, it's just so unfortunate. It's like a play that that basically, um, you know, set a poor tone for the rest of the season, um, potentially. Because at that point, the Cardinals were seven and zero on a top of up top of the world in the NFL, and so you know it was a tough loss. But I think what happened in that game was significant because, and I think that there were growing frustrations that. Cliff and Kyler were having with each other um, where, you know, Cliff had called plays that he was sure were going to work and then Kyler would audible out of them. You know, I was just saying today on, 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 on Twitter that, you know, people blame Cliff for the third and eight bubble screens or the third and two go routes. You know, those to be fair, the majority of those calls were audibles by Kyler. Um, 
And so it made Cliff look terrible when they didn't work. Um, and it certainly didn't help Kyler either. Um, but th this is where I think in that game, quite a, the frustration was starting to boil. And, and this is, this happens so often in pro football when you, when, when quarterbacks are given the autonomy to change the play at the line of scrimmage, you know, it, it, it there's a, a give and take there between the play caller and the quarterback that, and oftentimes a means for conflict between what are you seeing and what am I seeing and why didn't you run the play that was called and this and that. And, and here's the thing is that, you know, from that point on, Kyler was never quite the same, particularly on pre-snap. He just got what I would call the yips. And whether you that should be blamed on Cliff or Kyler or a combination, I don't know. But I mean, Kyler in the in the rain in in Chicago was fine. He had that great fourth down fade pass touchdown to Hopkins to set the tone early. And he basically passed for 120 yards. We didn't need him to pass that much there. So he got in his first game back that win. But it also is important to point out how well Colt McCoy ran the offense in, in Kyler's absence. In you know, he had a clunker against Carolina at home. Um, but um but the two road games, NFC road games, were huge because in beating um, the 49ers on the road, like 34 to 17, um, and then beating Seattle on the road, 27-17, both games by 10 or more points. I mean, what, what Colt showed in those games was how Cliff's offense looks when it's run on schedule and when the plays that are being called called in are are – more often run than not. And Colt was a quieting presence for the players. And, and he was playing under behind a makeshift line at that point too. I mean, Roddy Hudson was out of one of those games. I mean, there was a, you know, Max Garcia was in there. I mean, there were, there were injury issues along the line at that point, which, uh, you know, Colt, Colt was able to, to manage. I mean, this game, his game against the Rams win last year was phenomenal in that, you know, Aaron Donald was playing their, their Ram defense had most of their best guys and Colt led the team to a 27, 17 win um, in LA uh, with one starter remaining on the offensive line. It was Kelvin Beecham. I mean, that was the most makeshift offensive line we've had in a while, but Colt, ran the offense the way it was designed and he did it with a calmness that we didn't see with Kyler. And I don't think it's any, you know, um, uh, any fluke that, you know, when, when Colt did this against the Rams last year, Kyler's first game back from injury, he was great for three quarters versus the chargers. He was running it the same way until the fourth quarter hit and it just we had um two three and outs that really were costly at the end of the game um but you know getting back to 
to, you know, the 2021 season was there a mixture of things. You know, there's, there was uh, some friction going on between Kyler and, and Cliff in terms of getting the plays on schedule. But there was also the influence, I believe, of Kyler's agent, Eric Burkhart. And I said at the time, which was not met with um, with with applause, was that if there was one person who could took, take the Cardinals down, it was Eric Burkhart. Because um, at that point, you know, he was also doing his thing with Cliff Kingsbury, um, you know, hitting the media with Kingsbury being a candidate to take over for Lincoln Riley in Oklahoma. You know, that whole thing, it was so unfortunate, and Cliff didn't even deny it. Um, said he leaves those things up to his agent. Isaiah Simmons was calling Cliff. Cliff, you're not going to leave, are you? I mean, all that was every kind of distraction you'd least want to have when you're seven and one on top of the NFL world and looking to to sustain your momentum. And you know, I think that after Kyler's Kyler high ankle sprain and we saw in previous seasons how limited he became post-injury um and how, how more more tentative he became um i think it was compounded with the fact that i can just imagine eric burkhart saying kyler no matter what if you want you know the big contract after the season you better not get hurt again and i think it looked at times like kyler was more quick to take a dive um, in the middle of a pocket or, you know, he wasn't as, as uh, free and easy about trying to scramble out of situations. It just looked like a kind of a Kyler and a bit of a straight jacket as compared to how free he was earlier in the season. Um, and so, I mean, that was tough. I mean, all that, and there were, I think, contributing factors to that. And, you know, I mean, there were times when... But what's interesting to me is how Kyler went into Dallas at the end of that season, 2021, 20, when the team had been really struggling, um, you know, down the stretch and played a great game against the Cowboys as he, as he always has in that building where he's never lost a game. It was just weird how Kyler could get up for that game. And then the next week, the Cardinals lost to the Seahawks at home as heavy favorites. They win that game. They win the NFC West. They get a home playoff game. And the Seahawks with nothing to play for except their pride, which which there's no better coach for playing on pride than Pete Carroll. He he uh you know, he essentially I think was the main one of the main reasons why three Cardinals coaches got fired. Um Wisenhunt with the fifty eight nothing scenario in his last year, that was the backbreaker there. Arians with the, his best year in 2015 in weeks in the last game of the season, Seattle comes in and absolutely pace the Cardinals 
um, ending their nine-game winning streak and further injuring um, Carson Palmer's finger, which was kind of broken at that point, and he was trying to play through. And that was one of the first games after Tyron Matthew had uh, had had the ACL and was out. It just going into the playoffs that kind of rocked the Cardinals pretty something fierce. For fortunately, we got a hail Larry, hail Larry in the first playoff game. I'm just so grateful still that after uh, Aaron Rodgers threw the his own hail Mary touchdown pass that they didn't go for two. Oh my gosh! Um, to try to win right there, that was. But um, thank goodness because we got the hail Larry. But then, then the you know the the tough part was the was the next game um, when the, the Carolina Panthers came out and crushed them. Yeah, yeah, and then you know all the defensive players, um, you know, getting pissed on the sidelines. It was it got ugly pretty fast. Um, you know, but uh, that Panthers game was essentially the end of that group, you know, having some level of success. That was uh, that was kind of the yeah. tipping point for them, yeah, exactly. So, but that game, the Panthers game, was kind of the beginning and the end for Arians because it was starting to look like his decision to promote a, a, a you know, a a guy had only been in the NFL as an assistant coach for three years to defensive coordinator in James Betcher and the kind of acrimony that was going on, on the sidelines with Betcher and the players at the end of that game. And then coming into the next season with all these renewed Super Bowl hopes and Arians even confessed that the first game against the Patriots that they lost to Jimmy G. <coughs> uh, um, he said derailed them. Um, you know, emotionally and took the morale away and took their mojo away. And they just went on to a seven, eight and one season, you know, and then uh, Arians was five and eight and won the last three games in the next season, but the health issues, the, this and that, um, you know, Pete Carroll, that game, if he just comes in and I mean, they were in the playoffs that year, they could have taken it easy. Instead. He was like, no, like, we just, these are our division rivals. We've got to play our best against them. We're not taking anything for granted. We're coming after them. And then, you know, I mean, that's why, you know, so, and then the, the, the pasting that Russell Wilson in his last game is the, in Seattle with nothing to play. They were like a five, six win team with nothing to play for beating the Cardinals at home and taking away the Cardinals um, chances of winning that NFC West, which as it turns out, they would have because the Rams were upset by the 49ers. Um, oh God. Um, it was just, uh, you know, that too, you could start to say was the beginning of the end because that, you know, the Rams playoff game was, a debacle of sorts. Um, Kyler had his worst game as a pro. And then we just don't know what Kyler was thinking when he refused to go back in the game at the end. Um, that was not a, a good look. Um, 
and it was, you know, stuff like that that can alienate teammates pretty quickly if some teammates weren't alienated already. And then, you know, the tone of the whole offseason was Kyler scrubbing his socials, the agent getting involved heavily on social media, <clears throat> timing it up for Super Bowl weeks where he wanted to be the attention of the NFL world. I mean, so much of that. I mean, people to this day, some fans said Kyler has never done anything wrong. Um, and that's where I disagree. I mean, this, in my opinion, with the Super Bowl coming to your building the next year and two teams winning in their own stadiums back to back in the Bucks and Rams. I mean, this is the last thing you'd want to have happen to your football team is to have holdouts and mass holdouts where not only the quarterback, the two top wide receivers and the virtually entire offensive starting offensive line don't show up at all during the offseason except for mandatory minicamp. I mean, all that was a disaster. And, you know, for me personally, these last two years have, have you know, and what I've, what we've all been asked to do to compromise as as fans um, has been really difficult. I, I mean, to me, it's been traumatic because um, I was hope so hopeful that the Kyler, that the Cardinals and Kyler could make a really strong push in Kingsbury's fourth year, um, and yeah, you know, it was doomed from the start that. The, you know, the Hopkins uh, suspense, pet suspension, brutal. I mean, all this was just horrible timing and pretty much everything you do to just derail a football team. And then you've got, um, you know, the fact that not only did Kyler miss OTAs, he was injured all of training camp. So I posted the other day, the first time since the Rams game, that the Cardinals had their starting offense taking reps together was the week of the Kansas City game. I mean, think of the disadvantage that put them in. Think of it. It's pretty much miraculous that, you know, the, that the Cardinals came back against the Raiders in week two and won that game due largely to Kyler's heroics at the end. That was, you know, one of the most brilliant games. Um, and then, you know, so then they lost the game and then they, they beat the Panthers. So they were two and two going into the Eagles game at home. And we know the Eagles were started out the way the Cardinals did the year before they were undefeated and looking like, you know, um, surefire Super Bowl contenders with Jalen Hurts playing his best football and AJ Brown, you know, I mean, this was a critical turning point game again where, you know, some frictions arose at the end of the game. Once again, I mean, the Cardinals had, were down by three It was and moving the ball. And Kyler had gone, you know, into a hurry up. It was under two minutes left. And he had done really good job of getting him. Like Kyle said, the Cardinals are great going from 20 to 20-yard line to 20-yard line. Um, in this case, it was like 20 to the 30-yard line. 
Um, Kyler got him that far. First off, a nifty scramble he had to start the drive to get it going, and some really good passes to Zach Ertz. Um, and we were moving against Jonathan Gannon's defense and moving at a good clip until the scramble, I don't know if you recall, but the scramble where Kyler on second and nine scrambled for eight and a half yards. It should have been more because he could have had, had it easily, but he went into his slide too soon, and the ball ended up being marked shy. And in the you know in the quickness of trying to stop the clock, um, thinking that he had the first down, Kyler spiked the ball on third down. So now it's fourth down and inches. And Cliff Kingsbury decided to kick the field goal to tie the game to just salvage that. Except that the kicker that Steve Kime brought in, who was struggling, Matt Amendola, misses the the field goal and the game's over. Um, but then there was the whole controversy of like, you know, um, <clears throat> of, did, uh, you know, whose fault was it for spiking the ball, Kyler's or Cliff's? And, you know, in my opinion, as I, it's understandable that Kyler may have thought that he had the first down, but as a quarterback, you got to make sure of that. And it's also understandable that given the situation that, um, you know, Cliff Kingsbury, um, you know, I don't know if they were out of timeouts or not. Um, that would be a great question to find out. I have the feeling they were out of timeouts because early in the game they were, you know, you know how there there's glitches in getting the plays off. You know, and like I said, there was pre-snap agita going on and havoc. I mean, once during this drive, there there was, uh, you know, an offsides by Kelvin Beecham, false start. Fortunately, they were able to uh, come back for that, where on third and eight, Kyler <coughs> hit Zach Ertz for 11 yards. And then on the next play on first and 10 at the Philadelphia 47, he hit Rondell Moore for five yards. So now it's second and five. Then he shows a short pass left to Marquise Brown for eight yards. So they move the sticks there. It's first and 10 at the Philadelphia 34. And here's where things got haywire. Kyler first. So there's 36 left seconds left in that situation. So he spiked the ball to stop the clock. Yeah. If they had timeouts left, they would have used them. I think they were at Definitely out of timeouts. Yes, so. can confirm that on the previous drive, the Eagles got it to first and goal at the 10-yard line, and the Cardinals used all three timeouts to stop the clock. To stop the clock, right. And they ended up kicking the field goal to go ahead, go ahead 20 to 17. So there were two spikes here, one on first down. Then Kyler ran up, up the middle for um, nine yards and didn't get the first down, then spiked on the Philadelphia 25. So it's really only a 43-yard field goal, which isn't too too bad, but it was wide right. And then there was that confusion pulse game and the, you know, Kyler <coughs> seemed to, um, you know, uh, deflect the blame. 
for that. And, you know, part of that was understandable. These, these kind of things happen. The biggest thing, though, is that given that a chance to do it again, I think he goes the extra yard and gets the, gets the slide off later. Um, it was just very unfortunate and ill-timed in the way that all happened. So, But this was a critical game because imagine if they – were able to beat the at least tie that game and, and win in overtime. You know the Cardinals would have been three and two at that point, and with some winnable games coming up, I mean that that season might have been able to be salvaged right then and there. But the fact that there was kind of a mix-up and controversy again is just a lot, and you know. And, and I, I just, it just got the feel of that. You know, I think that Cliff, in now his fourth year with Kyler, was was trying to get a stronger, you know, sort of grasp on Kyler. And Kyler, I don't think was very, you know, um, amenable to that. And so, the, you know, and I think it was a battle of egos and battle of wills. And, you know, I mean, people criticize Cliff for not being demonstrative enough or, or um, you know, um, for giving Kyler the kind of discipline he needed. But I'm not sure that's the case. In fact, I, I've heard from, from um, an insider that Cliff was trying really hard to, to get Kyler on track. And, and it was challenging Kyler in ways that he hadn't in previous years. But Kyler didn't take to it very well. And, of course, you had the, you know, the whole home, homework clause and all that, the fallout of that, which was demoralizing for Kyler. You know, but after that Philly game, things got away pretty quickly. And, you know, things started happening. Guys showing up late for meetings, um, you know, including, you know, not just Kyler, but Marquise Brown. We saw a lot of it. And then, you know, that second half of the season, HBO came in and we saw a lot of it there. So, but, you know, and then when Kyler went down for the ACL, I mean, that's a game he shouldn't have been playing. And if you do the discipline right. Because he missed, he was late, very late for a meeting that week. And, um, you know, normally you discipline a player for that. But the problem was at the time was Colt McCoy's elbow injury, which he got beat up badly in that 49ers Mexico City game. That was ugly. And he took it for the team on that. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but he was nursing that that bad elbow and didn't feel like he could go. And then Trace McSorley had had no first-team reps. He was just running the scout team. So Cliff was in a, in a very precarious position there. Plus, it's a night game against the Patriots, you know. Um, and he decided to roll with Kyler. You know, unfortunately, it just felt almost like, you know, it's meant to happen. Um, 
just just was awful. I mean, I I hated to see it. I hated to see Kyler on the ground. It was just really sad. I mean, and but Kyler himself has said some really good things since about that. Was that how it you know showed to him how you can't take anything for granted, and that in some ways this might have you know that this could make him stronger. I think that he, the way he attacked his rehab was all very impressive. And, you know, the, the demise of Cliff, the, the Cliff had to suffer down the stretch. I mean, I got to give Cliff unbelievable props for, you know, have, playing with that team, you know, and with different quarterbacks and having leads in fourth quarter games down the stretch with four different all four of the quarterbacks he had is, was just fourth quarter leads, <clears throat> three of which was squandered. Um, but, you know, I mean, you got to give Cliff credit. I mean, one thing Cliff's really good at is working with all quarterbacks. I mean, we've seen that. And particularly when they're on schedule the way Colt McCoy is. I mean, it's still an uncanny statistic to look at. But thus far in, in Kyler's five years in the NFC West, he's five and eighteen. And Colt McCoy is three and one. I mean, how 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 does that happen? I mean, and in all three of those games on the road, beating all three of the rivals, it was by ten or more points. I mean, wow. Um so and I always wondered if there was some friction there in the building where the players in 21 wanted Cliff to stick with Colt because of how well the offense was meshing um, right there. And maybe Kyler got whiff of that um, somehow. <clears throat> and I don't think um, DeAndre Hopkins would have been happy with that. But Hopkins got hurt down the stretch there. Um, and that hurt, but you know, because it presented, you know, it did become a bit of a question. How long are we going to, can we give Kyler more weeks to get hundred percent? Um, and don't have to rush him back. Should we be able to stick with Colt? Um, and I know the fans were really, many of the fans were really upset that that was even a question. And nobody was suggesting that Colt McCoy was a better quarterback, you know, talent-wise. Obviously, that's not the case. But you, when you were, he was running it so well on schedule, and so with such calm and poise, um, it affected the whole team positively. And you know, in in juxtaposition, the way Kyler was just such agita on pre-snap um, and guys are jumping off sides and it just looked like, you know, what is Cliff doing? What a, you know, terrible coach. I mean, the disparity of how the offense was run and the smoothness that it was run under McCoy versus the frantic aspects that were going on with Kyler was just, you know, presented a, a, a juxtaposition that made you wonder. Um, and, 
So the question was going into this season, once Kyler started playing, would we see more franticness from Kyler? And initially we did. And he, he even said after games, you know, I'm trying to get rid of some of the old ha bad habits that he had. Um, and I think that, you know, so that was such a great self-awareness and it gave me really hope, great hope that he's going to be able to, to change some things. And he did. It got better. It wasn't perfect. Um, his two-minute drills, which he struggled in in the past, you know, the first one against Atlanta, he made work with that amazing scramble. So give him a huge plus there, and it got him on the board with a win right away. That was awesome. The ones in at Chicago and Houston were not good at all. I mean, you could hardly get the snap off. All he would ever do is throw the five-yard straight pass to the running back. Um, and and he, he was pre-snap 30 seconds off the clock on occasions. We're just like, snap the ball, come on. I mean, it was just poor clock management. And no coach teaches it that way. So, you know, it that's on Kyler. Um, but down the stretch in – you know, at Pittsburgh, Kyler had answers on third downs. And his, you know, hookups with, with Trey McBride in that game were awesome. In the Eagles game, he had answers. Um, and that was, I mean, what a game. Fantastic game that he played there. Um, the, the second half of the Chicago game, Cardinals had their chances. But, you know, again... The situational, um, uh, you know, um, football was not good. And, you know, that's something it happens, but something they can learn up. And I think that, that Kyler really showed growth from that that point in the last couple of games. The Seattle game, he was in complete command. It just so sucks that we lost that game to Pete Carroll again. It just, you know, um, they did everything right until the last two minutes and you know so and the defense that had played been playing well gives up 64 yards in four plays and a wide open conversion and we lose the game on a, on a missed another missed Matt Prater field goal um, and it could have avoided the first winless NFC West season in Cardinals history um, but but here's the hope for Kyler, and I, I think that, you know, the fact that we saw so many encouraging signs, the fact that he started clicking with Michael Wilson was huge. The fact that he started clicking with Elijah Higgins was huge. The fact that he started clicking with Greg Dortch was huge. I mean, these are guys that are all coming back. Plus, you have McBride coming back, I mean, in his, in, into just his third year. So that move, plus the offensive line, Kyler and and – Jalte Froholt had a nice little chemistry going on. I think they worked well together. That offensive line and Kyler worked well together. The offensive line was really a bright spot in how hard they attacked on the running game. James Conner was huge. And, but to see Kyler make adjustments and have the, the humbleness that maybe in the past he kind of lacked 
was so huge. And then the level of his investment, as I said, to have been in that building every day and to be as invested as he was, paid dividends, handsome dividends. And so now with the prospect of having his first on-the-field OTAs since his rookie year, this is really exciting. And, you know, and, and, and it's exciting to think that like, what they can do with this offense and they're going to get some, you know, more talent in there um, in free agents and in the draft. So, I mean, that's exciting too. Now, what will it take for Kyler to get back to where he was and maybe even beyond? I mean, I know some fans are saying this is the best pot Kyler's played ever. Um, that is even Kyler would tell you, no, that's not, that's not true. Um, the numbers don't bear it out. I mean, Kyler was steadily progress, progressing as a passer um, in, incrementally from his first three years. His uh, passer efficiency, efficiency ratings were, were going up through the 80s. And in year three, we had a high of 85, I believe it was. Um, so, you know, that was all moving in the right direction. Um, and none of that anyone seems to want to give Cliff Kingsbury any credit for, which is bizarre to me. Um, yeah, and, and that gives me an idea, a couple ideas of what, what Kyler can do um, to really pave the way for this kind of renaissance is, you know, I think it's, it's in him to continue this dedication. I mean, he was in the building working out the day after the last game. And I don't know why Jonathan Gannon would say, go home. I mean, would you say go home to JJ Watt? Cause that's what he did every year. I mean, these, you know, I think J.J. Watts, the legacy that he left in that building was profound. I mean, this is what J.J. Watt would do. And so Kyler's in there doing that. That is fantastic. That was a huge sign, and I hope Kyler doesn't pay attention to it. You know, Kyler just does what he do he's going to do to stay dedicated. I believe he will. I think he's a, a player on a mission, and I think that he's refocused and re-energized. But the main thing is, Two main things is he's invested and he's humble. Those two qualities, you know, he's been humbled by what's happened in the past well enough to work so hard to overcome it. And that's where the renaissance can come in. But I have a few ideas. Um, and two of them I've talked about already and were discussed on Bickley and Murata. The one is this offseason, get your feet right in the pocket and learn how to float to buy that extra second. When you watch Brock Purdy, like I did the other day, and he when he came from behind to win that game, man, does he float really well and buy that extra. He waits till the last. He reminds me of Tom Brady, to be honest with you, the way he floats long enough for the – for his receiver to shake free to be able to pass the ball on schedule. And 
Kyler can do that. He can. He's got better feet than Purdy. I mean, it's but it takes practice, and you know, and there are ways that you can rep it and drill it that I think the Cardinals will try with him. Because Purdy's basically the same size as Kyler. He's not that much bigger, much taller. Um, and he, what, the reason why you do float is not only you're buying full time, you're you're floating into clear passing lanes. So you're doing it for eyesight as well as buying time. And you just got to feel where the pressure is and go opposite what the what the pressure is. The second is occasionally um, if the pass rush is getting fierce run a quarterback draw or design scramble up the middle to keep the rushers off honest. He did that a couple times down the stretch, and that was huge. And if you saw the result of that was that that's every defensive coordinator's nightmare is, you know, Tyler breaking from the pocket because then you got to keep, not only one spy, probably two, as Nick Saban said when he played Kyler, was that Kyler's too quick for one spy. So, you know, that's a huge part of the game to develop is is beating teams with his legs up the middle. And then there's a couple of things, I think, you know, mentally and cathartically he can do that I think would be great um, – gestures on his part number one is there's no reason why he should have to be incentivized to be in the offseason program to the tune of 10 million dollars i mean he's going to make 50 million next year um 51 million so it would be a nice gesture of him to, to you know equal the playing field with his you know teammates and brothers and saying like I, you know, I I should be like all the other guys who get what five hundred at the most, like a hundred thousand for workouts. You know, take that money, either give it back to, you know, or spend it on your teammates, um, or give it to charity, or do something to just say I don't want to be treated any differently than my my teammates on doing what players should be doing to help their teams. Um, I just think from a psychological standpoint, that would be really good for Kyler as, as a recognition. I mean, one of the things I'm so impressed with is Kyler has done a, a whole ton of um, retrospection. It's clear in the way that he's talking about, you know, the things that he's learned from and want to you know get better at and that's what being humble that's the was the one saving grace of this injury was how humble it made him and how hungry it made him to want to reverse the public perception of him and to help his team win so now that he's invested and he's got the support of the teammates better than he way better than he did two years ago. This is really, you know, um, it can be a crowning moment for Kyler um, to seize upon. That's one. I mean, it's something to do with, Hey guys, I don't, you know, we were able to get that in my contract, but 
I'm just one of 53 here. I should get the same that you guys get on workout bonuses. And I, I'm going to spend the rest of it on you, on y'all, if, if they're still giving it to me, or I'm just going to give it back because I'm making enough already. I know someone might be saying it's professional football, man. You never give anything back. Well, you, you do, you make gestures of a certain sort. And Kyler's always been very generous with his offensive line and what he gets him for Christmas gifts and everything. So this wouldn't be out of his, his nature to do that. But I think as a gesture of saying like, listen guys, we're all in this together. I'm, you know, I don't need the red carpet anymore. I'm getting enough money as it is. I don't need to be incentivized to be in the building. This is what I want to do. I don't need to be, be paid for any more than what you're getting paid for, which is a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, whatever that is. Okay. And then this the next thought for me is I think that it would be really healthy and cathartic for Kyler to give Cliff some props. I mean, and some thanks for, you know, the good times. Um, for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, without Cliff, does Kyler get drafted number one in the NFL? I don't know. I mean, you know, probably Nick Bosa goes one that year. Now, Kyler was going to be a high draft pick. I don't think there's any question about that. But in a way, I mean, Kyler came into the NFL in an ideal situation with a coach who thoroughly believed in him, who wanted to start him from day one. And even when things got tough, stayed with him. And even in his last year, during Kyler's holdout, Cliff was saying to the media, there's no other quarterback I want to coach than Kyler Murray. And so Cliff never wavered in his belief of Kyler. Also, Cliff did everything he could to try to make Kyler feel good about the offense they were putting out there. Now, it, tensions got, you know, got built up a few times because of, you know, and we saw the F-bombing incident in the Saints game, you know, that that often, that's not unusual. It's like married, you know, spouses. I mean, when you're, when you're that joined together in a common cause and certain adversities happen and differences of opinions, there's an ego scenario to it. And, you know, it, it takes a compromise. And, I mean, the best compliment, backward compliment that, that Kyler has given Cliff is that, you know, and is that he said something to the effect of, well, we've won when Cliff was there, and you did win. I mean, you won 11 games in 2021, and you were, you know, playoff team. And so, you know, he's recognized that. Now, did they win enough games to their satisfaction? No, obviously. But, but there was that. But, you know, it wouldn't hurt Kyler to thank Cliff for the good things that he did for him um, and to recognize Cliff's you know, loyalty, even though they had, you know, they had their battles. You know, at the end of the day, 
Cliff was a major part of getting Kyler to where he is. And, you know, to this reaction from Cardinal fans of like Cliff had nothing to do. Kyler carried everything. Cliff was awful. That is just so naive. And to the point of being obtuse. I mean, Cliff had so much to do with this in, in, in working with Kyler um, to get him to where he, he got. And like I said, Kyler's, if, if the passing efficiency were improving each year, then you'd wonder. But it was. So, I mean, things were moving in the right direction. And a lot of it was like the perfect storm of things that could go wrong once that Green Bay came happened and, and things started, you know, swiftly um, spiraling out of control. Uh, uh, you know, that was tough. But, I mean, it wouldn't help. I mean, it wouldn't hurt. Because I think it's just so egregious that now every time Cliff's interviewing for a job, Cardinal fans are on Twitter saying, like, the guy's a joke, don't hire him. I mean, first of all, let's be honest about what Cliff really was in Arizona. He wasn't a head coach. He was offensive coordinator, called head coach. He had no say in defense. He had no say on special teams. He had no say on the roster. He had input, but Steve Keim was making the roster. Steve Keim was hiring the staff. He had no one on this after they fired David Ray, the one connecting, connected guy that he had. He had no one on that staff with any previous allegiance. He had all these things going against him. It's pretty much a miracle that Cliff was able to pull off as much as he, he did in, you know, three years. It really is, if you look at it. And Cliff is not a bad guy. He's not a vindictive guy. Cliff, Cliff has class. He never threw Kyler under the bus. He could have he could have disciplined Kyler for f on him. He didn't do that. Maybe that, maybe you can criticize Cliff for that. But Cliff held his head up. He never wavered in his belief of Kyler. You know, it's all started going south in certain ways. But, you know, Cliff, Cliff's investment, no one worked harder in investing his time and efforts in Kyler than Cliff did. And for that, for all those efforts, for all those 4.30 a.m.s, for all those turning out the lights being the last guy in the building, which Kyler's now doing, which is awesome. Does anyone really think Kyler's happy to hear whenever a fan gets on Twitter to basically rip Cliff a new one? That Kyler's ha ha good, you know, feels good about that. I, I don't think so. I, I can't imagine that. I don't think they're the best of buddies necessarily, but I think Kyler knows well enough the effort amount of effort and faith that Cliff put in him. And for three years, it was all going in the right direction. And so for that, you know, he could give Cliff a little props there. Um, Mahomes has done it. And, you know, Mahomes has refuted that Cliff didn't teach him right. Um, that was, that's ridiculous. I mean, Cliff was an 
you know, all-American quarterback himself at Texas Tech. He grew up fundamentally throwing the football correctly. I mean, if anyone knows throwing mechanics, it's him. But sometimes with some players, you know, I mean, Mahomes had a penchant and he had a, he was an innovator of throwing from different angles. And so Cliff rode with that. But it, it looked stupid at times. And like, who's coaching this kid? Um, but that wasn't on Cliff. And I just saw a thing where, you know, they had the top college Hall of Fame of quarterbacks posted on Twitter, and Mahomes was third. I mean, the gaudy numbers that he put up there, to think that Cliff got in Mahomes' way is just bizarre. I mean, you'd have to want to hate the guy something fierce to claim that. It's just wrong. I mean, the problem at Texas Tech was couldn't recruit in the Big 12 well enough to have the depth or talent enough on defense to be competitive, particularly in the late season schedules against Big 12 rivals, which were more loaded uh, two or three deep at every position. That was tough. And, you know, whoever's at Texas Tech has that issue. Yeah, the problem um, is you could but, never win 10 games at Texas Tech. It's just, it's literally impossible to win ga 10 games at Texas Tech, no matter who you are and no matter who's coaching. It is not possible to win 10 games at Texas Tech. Yeah, now the only way would be if they have an um, endowment fund for the NIL to get guys in there, um, pay them up. And, you know, so you can't rule any any school out if they somehow have, you know, the alumni and the, the benefactors to, you know, create a buzz there. So, but you're right. I mean, typically under the previous circumstances, it was going to be tough for anybody to win 10 games at, at Texas Tech. No, it, it's essentially impossible. In, in the last 50 years, one team has won more than 10 games at Texas Tech. <laughs> Yeah, um, and for some very similar reasons. So, but, uh, you know, that would be great, in my opinion, because um, I think it could help stop some of the bleeding that, uh, you know, Cliff's been satisfactorily, you know, um, humbled um, by the owner, by the whole experience of last season, um, by Kyler, you know, yelling at him on um, national TV. I mean, and Cliff has handled it with incredible class. There's nothing vindictive about the guy and he deserves better. And I would hope that Kyler would recognize that and get kind of pissed off that Cliff's getting this bad rap. When I'm sure Kyler has his frustrations with Cliff, that's going to happen. Um, with two competitors like that who are trying to have maybe different ideas at times as how to how to move the move the team. But at the same time, you can recognize. I mean, Belichick and Brady had their issues, tons of them. I mean, it just happens. So. I think that would be from if you want to wipe the slate clean and get everything clear. 
um, it would be a nice gesture. And I hope he does it. Now, maybe he's done it privately. Um, and, you know, I'm going to ask around about that. I've got to know a couple people close to the situation that that might be able to tell me that because and i think it's probably likely that he has reached out to cliff and said hey man sorry it didn't work out you know um because i imagine they still have a relationship plus they shared the same you know <clears throat> the same agent i don't know if they still do i heard a rumor that cliff that Kyler is no longer necessarily with urquhart so uh, Burkhart. So, Kyle, um, what do you think? Well, having gone through the 2021 season with you, which, you know, that's kind of when everything was supposed to come together in the Cliff and Kyler era, it felt like when they lost to that, uh, that really bad Detroit team was kind of when everything felt like it was unraveling. But when you went back and talked about the Philadelphia Eagle game, it was kind of interesting to think about how if they do pull that game out or, or make the kick or go to overtime or even tie against the, you know, eventual NFC champion Eagles. I mean, it does completely turn the tides of that season, which I'd kind of forgotten that they were in a position to go two and two at that point when I believe their record at the end of the season was three thirteen and one and they would have had or maybe it was four twelve and one and they would have had three wins right off the bat before before you know even the, the trade deadline came close to coming around so maybe that changes the whole trajectory of that season for the Cardinals last year I, I kind of forgotten about that in the in the the rung of losses and everything falling apart last year that they they were pretty close to going three and two and maybe that changes the way that we perceive that whole season or the, I think the fallout probably still happens because these yeah. were some, some deep seated underlying issues between Kyler and cliff and the, the quarterback coach being a mediator and everything that was going on there, but it totally would have changed the perception of that season and maybe changed, uh, you know, whether or not the whole thing falls apart at the end where they go, you know, one ten and one to close out the season. Right. Yeah. That, uh, that Philly game was huge. And think of what that might've done to Philly's morale might've knocked them off their little perch there um, momentarily. And they would have had to respond to that. Um, yeah, because that was the fifth game of the season, oh, and if oh, I remember correctly, right. Philly ended up going ten and zero to start that season. It was either right. nine and zero or ten and zero. Right. I mean, that was such a winnable game for the Cardinals there, and you no, know, it sticks in my craw too. Is so I went back and reviewed that game, and I was just so tantalized. But you know who the defensive star was in that game for the Cardinals with thirteen tackles making plays all over the field. I have a hypothesis. Is it Isaiah Simmons? Yes. Yeah. And you would think that Jonathan Gannon would have made a mental note there. Like, boy, if I could ever get my hands on a player like this, it's just uncanny to me how mishandled the whole Isaiah Simmons situation was. Uh, but that's talk for a different day because today's a Kyler day. But what else? What else are you feeling about Kyler right now, Kyle? 
the one thing I'll note is he better not give back that $10 million that is contractually <laughs> available to him. Uh, just it, it hurts my pro labor sensibilities to give back $10 million to your employer when it was guaranteed in your contract. But I like the idea of spending it on on your teammates. You know, you all get to have a a nice big team dinner during OTAs. You get to uh, maybe right. get some sort of gifts before the season starts for for the players who are coming in. I like that idea. And and honestly, Kyler should probably be doing a lot of that anyways, in particular because of how many rookies and players on either rookie contracts or, you know, undrafted free agent contracts they're going to be on that team. That's right. it's just a general, you know, NFL rule is that the the person who makes the who makes the more money will spend on the younger people. And that's how the team camaraderie and all for one, one for all right. stuff happens. I assume a lot of that's yep. happening anyways, but I, I like the idea of just him spending it on the teammates and, you know, money that he's collecting from the team that the team is resistant to spend on other players at this stage. Right. Yeah. You know, what he could do too is contribute to his teammates charities like Kelvin Beecham's um and whatnot um you know jonathan ledbetter who i think got the was recognized for his charity work i mean that would be a really super gesture too is supporting them and their their charitable endeavors um but just to equal the pay just just to say you know look <laughs> we were able to get that in my contract but let me let me uh, let me just spread the wealth with you guys because we're all in this together. Um, you know, it's not a it's not a, a a prerequisite by any stretch of the imagination, but I hope people understand the psychology of this. Is that gestures to make teammates feel like, hey, you know, the red carpet is a thing of the past. I'm right in here slugging it out with all of you. I don't need a red carpet. I want the same carpet you're walking on. I think psychologically and symbolically that could go a long way um, for him and for the, the Cardinal teammates. Yeah, and hopefully and it's one of those new, things. Yeah, of the new joy of being in the building in the offseason, um, working together. Go ahead. Yeah. I was thinking that it's maybe one of those things we don't find out about either if and when he does make those decisions like, you know, giving charity, giving charity yeah. to people or spending money on people and stuff like that. It, it might end up I hope hopefully will end up being one of those things that we don't find out about because it's just something he does as this. Oh, hey, I'm going to, you know, take this money and reimburse or here's this, you know, extra bonus that I have in my contract that you know, is a, is a little bit unfair, but I, I'm still going to redistribute the wealth. It'd just be kind of interesting. to see. I, it was an interesting idea that you brought up. And I thought that that was a, a fun idea is just a way to to redistribute the wealth a little bit because he's already, you know, he it's I shouldn't say obliged to do it, but it's just culturally a very normal thing for the person who's making a lot of money and that the, you know, team leader who's making a lot of money to redistribute right. some of that money to players who make less money on the team. That's just a very culturally normal thing in the NFL. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think there were, 
think Kyler will make some really fine gestures. I feel like he's in a good place mentally, better than ever before. I feel like he's maturing before our eyes. Um, the thing is, you know, watching playoff football, the amount of pressure that these quarterbacks are under and the amount of grit that it takes to, to um, you know, uh, prevail in these type of games, I mean, is enormous. You have to be physically able to do it, mentally able to do it, and under extreme duress. And it'll be very interesting to see if how Kyler can take that on when he's given the next opportunity, how he can create that opportunity and take that on. Because, uh, you know, what a battle. I mean, you watched these, you watched the games last weekend, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, look at, I mean, look at the battle that Jordan Love put out there. I mean, then he makes a one boneheaded, huge decision at the end. Well, and I think kind of the um, explanation on that one and, and, you know, call it a second playoff game or first time trailing in a playoff game or whatever, but he, he right. looked so calmed and poised the whole way through the game. And then the Niners came right. back to take the lead and he looked absolutely scared shitless on the last drive of the game. Right. Like it, it, it right. kind of changed as the game dynamic went along and they started to realize, oh, we might actually end up losing this game. Right. I mean, look at the way Stroud battled fiercely mm-hmm. throughout that whole game. You know, it's just – and Mahomes and Allen, what another just unbelievable shootout, um, you know, display with kind of 53 million – record viewers i mean that was just stunning um you know and purdy what he had to go through mentally to prevail in that with all the pressure of the world in that scenario to bring the team back when he had to and if you you know when you look at how he hung in there and made those those plays uh, gotta give him credit i mean wow i mean he and there was no panic that's the point is that in that situation, first playoff game where he's really challenged down at the end to where he's got to deliver to win. He had what it took and he, you know, made the plays. So um, I got to give him a ton of credit, but this is where, you know, this playoff football is such a test of metal. M E T T L E. I mean, it's such a test of grit because nothing's going to come easy and you have to be able to be prepared to take all that on and be able to fight back time and time again to be able to prevail. And I would love to see Kyler, um, you know, take on that kind of onus and privilege and excitement if he gets his chance again. Because there's unfinished business there, obviously, for him um, after coming off that, you know, the one game he played, which, you know, such an anomaly. I I don't even want to dwell on that. Um, You know, and it can happen. Uh, You know, it can happen pretty easily against a defense like that, too. But, uh, and just with the way that season was going for the entire team. Um, it was, you know, 
fading pretty quickly. So, but yeah, uh, a renaissance for Kyler, I think, is is pretty exciting to think about. I think he's in good hands with Petsing, um, and you know, be interested to see what what Petsing, what kind of wrinkles Petsing puts in there for next season, and you know, uh, um, and how they keep working on uh, improving the running game, which has been so impressive. It's just a lot of excitement to think about in the upcoming season, and to see what the pieces they could add. So, Kyle, thanks to you, as always. And again, for last week, which was so much fun, and we're going to do that again when we, when this, when the, you know, towards April, when we'll do a post free agency mock um, edition with your mock and my mock. And then um, thanks to all of you for your support and continued, um, you know, enthusiasm and, uh, See you all on Revenge of the Birds and see you on Twitter at WBJ Mitch in the interim and enjoy, wow, the championship games this weekend. Um, who do you like, Kyle? Well, you know how my philosophy is always bet on red and then double down for, for years and years. But, uh, <laughs> Baltimore's got the number one defense in the NFL and the things that Baltimore does really well are what Kansas City struggles with, which is pass rushing off the edges, which is, you know, tackle protection by Kansas City and a true definitive number one quarter who can take away Rasheed Rice. So Baltimore's well positioned to win that game. But my philosophy is is bet on red and double down. And uh, in the other one, uh yeah, the, the Lions are happy to be here, but San Francisco is going to womp De- uh, Detroit in that second game. San Francisco is going to win. And uh, do you we'll have see- San Francisco, Kansas City? Uh, I'm I'm gonna rec- I'm gonna recuse myself from the first game because you know I, I love Patrick Mahomes and I always say bet on red, but Baltimore is clearly the better team. Baltimore so is clearly and above Baltimore. the better team. So you're taking Baltimore. I'm I'm not picking either side in that game. I I don't feel confident either way. Um, On the fence, I'm gonna (laughs) and I have to sit on the fence for this one because every everything everything is pointing towards Baltimore winning. But I I will my philosophy has been wrong very rarely of always bet on red and double down, considering that. Patrick Mahomes now has, I think, I think five or six more playoff wins than the entire Arizona Cardinals franchise history. Now it's hard to bet against Red and, and him and Andy Reid. <laughs> I'm going to be definitive. I think Kansas City takes him out. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I really think so. I think it'll be, a, you know, another beer fest for the Kelsey brothers and Taylor Swift. Um, I just feel like I'm feeling like momentum coming on their parts. And I feel that, uh, for some reason they're going to get to Lamar, but I could be totally wrong. That's just what I'm feeling. And then on the other side, I'm going Detroit all the way. Uh, Oh, wow. Wow. I am. I think Jared Goff had really good games against San Francisco traditionally. When he was in with the Rams, and um, I, I, I just, 
you know, because of the NFC West element and him being familiar and because they run some similar style stuff, I just have a feeling that uh, he's going to be better than you think. And and I think it's going to come down to the wire and a, and a key turnover. <clears throat> and I could see the Lions pulling that one out. So the Goff's, could, the Goff's the reason the road. Goff's the reason they're going to win because it, San Francisco, I know Debo Samuel's a 50-50 to play at this point because I think he might have a separated shoulder, yeah. but uh, the yeah. Lions have one competent NFL cornerback, and uh, San Francisco has three incredible receivers. So I believe San Francisco is is going to... They're not going to look as, as worrisome as they did in the, in the Packer game. I, I think San Francisco's going to come out and just drop so many points on Detroit. So we'll see what happens. I though. think you're, I, I think you're probably right, but my hunch is telling me something different. So let's see what happens. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, I, I, wow. I'm really looking forward to it. And I would just absolutely love to see those lions win. Um, that would be so stunning, but, uh, all right. So, um, in the interim, Cardinal fans, may the red rain shower down on you into the red, red sea. Red rain. <laughs>